Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How are you? I'm I'm good. We're preparing for like a really, really, really nasty next couple of days with like, you know, we're getting into the double degrees below zero with the wind chill. It's not good, Steve. Not good at all. I mean, I saw that coming and I thought it would be a good time to get out of Dodge. <laughs> yeah, well, you, well, you enjoy yourself doing all the things that you're doing and, and leave me here with the cold. Well, you know, I might call in if you uh, absolutely have nobody else to interact with over the time. But uh, you're such hopefully, a te- you're such a technical we- luddite, Steve. You can't <laughs> feel cold through phones. It's not going to work like that. You won't experience what I'm experiencing. You know what? I was never one of those touchy feely people. <laughs> Obviously. All right. Uh, should we head into some feedback and see what people have for us? Absolutely. Chris writes in, writes in and says, hey, guys, long time, first time. I think that means long time listener, first time emailer. I think it's kind of funny that the primary takeaway from the boost and sats discussion is it's kind of hard to buy sats. Imagine if we let that stop us from learning to use Linux. I've been selling podcast ads for longer than any of us have had kids, and I can tell you the market is not good. I think you should turn this discussion inward and be transparent about this. I hope you'd be willing to read this in full on the air. From what I can tell, the Ask Noah show has kicked butt for 322 episodes and has been a cost center the entire time. It generates leads, but the show does not and has not ever directly paid for itself. Noah and Steve, I hate to tell you this, but few podcasters are in that position of privilege. Not many folks can afford to run a show for that many years at a significant cost like you have. That's worth considering. Folks are often forced to accept less than ideal ad terms to cover their run costs. Additionally, or especially, podcasters in smaller niches, like open source. But let's keep this local. Imagine if you wanted the show to at least cover its own costs, maybe even helping out folks involved with production. Are you going to take on sponsors? So far, the answer to that seems to be no. And knowing you as I do, I'm betting there's a lot of a time constraint issue more than anything else. But let's say you did take on a sponsor. And once you take on the sponsor, it becomes an ongoing work that requires more time. And they're 100% a client of yours now, so they're your customer. And at which sponsor you're, you bring in, that's not eventually a company that you also have to cover in the news or some other segment. How do you know what to price the spots at? Does your audience want sponsorships after all these years of being ad-free? What happens when they start asking for dynamic inserts? What happens when, to seal the deal, you have to bring on one of their big execs for a softball interview? That's what sponsors are demanding in 2023. Budgets are getting tight, and they want more for their dollar. So far, your show has avoided all of that, and I don't think you fully appreciate how you can start to slide once it's helping your friends pay their bills. Value for value using boosts solves all of those problems for the better. Lightning is an open protocol and an open network written with open source software. No PayPal, Stripe, or Patreon that takes a cut and can shut people off. It's like SMTP versus AIM. 
in open source that you can build a business on for the long haul, not just for a few years, but for decades, when you are funded by your audience, that makes them your biggest customer. And we all know how hard you work for your customers. That's the big idea. Chris. So, Steve, your thoughts. So I took a while to mull this over because largely it was it was my criticism that prompted this. And so as I do, I, I started to reflect upon hmm, what what did I say and and how did I say it and maybe how it was being interpreted. And I chatted with Noah offline about this to to kind of get a gut check and, and to just chat about um, what my opinion was. So I want to start off by saying. First of all, I wholeheartedly agree with the principles of the value for value. So I have a long history of being involved where I can, when I can, from the open source product projects that I use or whatever. Like Noah and I were going back and I realized that I have been involved in one form or another with the Ask Noah show since 2018. Uh, that goes back quite a long ways. And I I can trace back to writing some documentation for the original XBMC and in the early in the early aughts as it was getting off the ground and and various other things including supporting podcasts with uh with money and so my wife and i have this idea that we will always try to buy local when we can in order to support the people around us so all that to say is i 100 percent value the attempt at finding a alternative funding model i think that there's worth in that and we should pay for things that we believe have worth. Having said that, um, I think that there is a few things here that that I'd like to kind of mull over with the audience. And I'd like to hear what you guys think about about my thoughts on this, because it's it really is an open discussion. Like Noah really wants to encourage participation from the audience. So I'm going to start off by saying I think that there's a difference between learning a technical skill so that you can serve other people. Um, and so like, Chris in this email is talking about, he makes the comparison between um, having it be a little bit difficult or challenging to, to learn Linux or some te- technical skills and comparing that to the ability to um, give somebody money. So ultimately, if you're asking for audience participation, you really need to provide good instructions on how to do so. Uh, especially if someone is trying to do this from scratch, right? So I work with clients every day. And if I, if we all start off by trying to give enough information that they can understand whatever it is that you're trying to convey, right? Go do this technical thing. You don't want to insult them by giving them the, the, the Fisher price level, like hit the blue button sort of thing. Like you want to try and start with uh, assuming they know some, they have some base level of knowledge. But if they came back to me and said, you know what, that was too hard or didn't work for me or um, that some form of that, it really becomes my problem as the person who's trying to guide someone through, like I want them to achieve a thing. It becomes my job to provide better instructions to smooth out that process. And so I think that there is some some middle ground here of, okay, yep, that was difficult. And I'm providing, I'm, I'm attempting to provide feedback saying, hey, I found r- rough corners. And this is where I think the audience participation would be good. 
it's possible that what I thought I was communicating was not communicated clearly enough and, and what do other people think? And so I was, I was attempting to approach this as I tried to do this thing. I, I was frustrated. I didn't give up immediately. I tried to walk through this um, and I got stopped. And this is not me trying to learn a skill. I was trying to donate to a podcast um, that I appreciated. I was trying to express my appreciation I wasn't able to do it. I got frustrated and said, you know, like this, this process needs a little bit of help because I shouldn't, as the person that just wants to give five bucks or whatever it is, it shouldn't be an entire process for me to go through that. And if it is like, fine, but there should be a walkthrough. Um, specifically, if we're going to talk about sats, I know tangentially about Bitcoin. Like I, I know what comes across my podcast catchers and I know what comes across my RSS feeds but I have no practical experience. So I I don't know where do I go to buy Bitcoin, right? Do I just go to the internet and tell me, like search for where should I buy Bitcoin? I don't know how this converts to sats and how I put this in a lightning wallet and how I connect all this sort of stuff up. That's even being a, a highly technical person, that is something that I'm not interested in outside of, I'm just trying to give you five bucks, right? So I'm not trying to write a, a I'm not trying to write instructions for other people to follow. I just want to be a typical end user and like click a button and provide some some value for value. Um, I also wanted to, to, I was thinking about the comment about being in a privileged position. And so I think 100% yes, I am in a position of privilege here, speaking for myself, right? I I have always been in a position with, uh, of of being able to provide for my family. We started off not having a lot of money, but I've, eventually I was able to build a career through God's grace. And that put me in a position to be able to help other people. So I started helping behind the scenes. And as time went on, I got more and more involved. I have a day job. So I don't have to and never have and never will take any money from from Noah. I'm doing this because I was able to make a career in open source because someone 20, 20 plus years ago took the time to explain something on the internet well enough that I was able to figure out how it could work. So aside from that, I, I think, like I said, I just want to restate, I really agree with the model. I was trying to follow it and I failed and that's that was all that I was trying to do. So if, if that was misconstrued, uh, I'm sure the audience will let me know. I want to start by thanking you for writing in. I always appreciate it when people that are particularly passionate about a project or a service or something that they use day in and day out, write in and talk about that. Because the people that eat their own dog food are going to be some of the most passionate, passionate, knowledgeable people on any particular subject. You mentioned the funding model of Ask Noah, and I, you know, you're right. There isn't a direct ROI on what we do here there there isn't but that has never been important to me building individual relationships with other people that is what i aim to do and serve other people around me is what i aim to do and so i've never sat down and done the math on it i can tell you that those relationships oftentimes when people go and need a technical service then they do think of ultra speed technologies and it's why we open the program every week saying live from ultra speed technologies because they fund the, the components of the studio and the things the ongoing expenses that we do have and so I, i'm deeply grateful for that 
And I have largely avoided sponsorships outside of AltaSpeed because I don't want to be beholden to sponsors. And I think anybody that knows me would know me well enough to say that I, I wouldn't sell out to somebody. If somebody thought they were going to tell me what to say because they were holding a check over my head, I would, I would, uh, I would tell that person to go pound sand. And I cannot be any more honest than that. But the real value in podcasting for me has been the conversation and the ability to conduct a conversation, listen to conversation, listen to other points of perspective, remove labels, and we start to discover nuance. And I think that's really exciting because with conversation comes change. And I absolutely believe that's true. And I've been able to see that's true. Talk about something. People ask questions. Now you have engagement. Then people go to implement. Then it grows. Then they go and help somebody else. And the cycle repeats. And I'm richly blessed and thrilled to be a part of that process. As far as podcasting 2.0 stuff, it's new. And so I expect there to be some rough edges. And what Steve was talking about in the way of he has not really played a whole lot with cryptocurrency. I have. And I understand enough about cryptocurrency to see how this can be powerful. So there's obvious problems with trying to use Bitcoin, which is, you know, I think that's where the real genius comes in with using something like lightning is you can do smaller amounts. And I think the, the, the timing of all this kind of sucks because right now with the whole Sam Friedman, all this stuff, now you've got all of these regulatory agencies trying to kind of crack down on cryptocurrency. And so my fear is it's going to be the technical burdens are going to get higher because they're going to want to deal with all this fraud prevention and all that crap. And so that's unfortunate. But as far as the actual technology itself, does podcasting 2.0 and the tools and resources that it provides, does it further the goal of organic conversation? Well, I believe it does. It largely removes the obstacles that are currently in place for one person to send money to another person, which a was the entire purpose of cryptocurrency in the first place. And B, it's not specific to podcasting, right? Like these, te this technology and these ideas can be applied all over the place. When you want one person to be able to provide value to another person for some value that they first provided, that facilitates the value for value and it, it furthers the goal of building an individual relationship. So I like all of that. When you get to things like clips and boost, again, this leads to a very organic network effect because you start to see the same usernames popping up and it starts to facilitate the ability of networking and discovering and funding podcasts in a decentralized way. So nobody can ever go back and pull the rug out from out from under all these people. So from that perspective, I understand what you're talking about when you say it's going to be or it has the potential to be around for decades to come. I hope that's true. Because oftentimes we don't make it decades with technology. Oftentimes we iterate. Oftentimes a replacement comes up. So I hope you're right about that. All of these tools allow podcasting to stay organic and allows us to give each other some perspective. And so I like the idea of multiple file types for a podcast feed. I like the idea of value for value. I like the idea that it's decentralized so that nobody can pull up the rug out from under you. Podping service, this is something I deal with literally every Tuesday night. I finish the show. I publish the show. The show is live. You should be able to get to it. I get in my car. I open my podcast app. I want to listen to the show on the way home. Guess what? Not there. So those kinds of problems I experience often enough that I agree a solution is necessary. And I like the fact that there are people that have sat down and said, 
hold on. If we just take a step back and think about this a little bit, there's probably a better way to crack this nut. And that's kind of where I think the real excitement in podcasting 2.0 is. It removes the middleman. It removes the payment processor. It literally goes to this person has something to say and somebody else provides or somebody else sees value in what that person is saying. So now one person can pay another person. And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. So at Ask Noah, I, I, I would tell you, we don't need the help. AltaSpeed paid to build the studio. It will continue to serve our broadcast needs for the foreseeable future. The relationships that I've built through Ask Noah have allowed AltaSpeed to grow. And so I'm deeply thankful for that. And so it, it, it's kind of a, a two-way circle. People listen to the program. They derive value from it. And then they go over to AltaSpeed. But if there's anything I can do to help spread the word of this awesome technology, anything I can do to help connect the community or empower the community to use a better tool for the job that's based in freedom, is based in open source, then that's something I can 100% support. It uh, reminds me of my, um, let's say, love-hate relationship with Matrix over the time. Right? <laughs> That's, that's what this really reminds me of. Like, I'm glad it exists. It's open source. I'm glad that people are getting value out of it. I dipped my toe into it off I, two or three times uh, between 2021 and 2023. And each time fell into paper cuts and went, eh. You know, and that's kind of what my uh, overall feeling is. You know, I think it's a similar expression here. I want to hear from you. If you've used the Lightning Network, if you've used Boost, how has it worked for you? How do you like it? What things do you like? Where do you think some room for improvement is? Live at AskNoahShow.com. Our second email comes in from Micah. Micah writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, I have a question about using NextCloud in my company. To understand the question, I'll give you a quick little setup. We do a lot of video editing on Kubuntu 2204 systems using DaVinci Resolve Studio and are currently running off of a Synology DS920 Plus with a RAID of 16 terabyte effective storage. We share over SMB and use SMB4K to mount. It actually allows us to connect and edit 4K Blackmagic RAW files as well. And being able to use Synology Quick Connect from home to access it is awesome. However, a few reasons NextCloud is more appealing. Number one, NextCloud allows for user profiles, so I can set each member up in my company with a profile for them to use at home, the office, or anywhere. Number two, the online document editing via only office is very appealing for remote access and such. I keep a few files, unfortunately, on a Google Drive account just so that I can edit without leaving the browser and have to re-upload when done. Three, I can centralize us on one system for chat, files, online, file editing, calendar, etc., all in one place, and I can host in building where I'd prefer to have it. I would also like to find a way to implement our ProtonMail accounts. So it's a single company hub. I'm currently testing at home on a Raspberry Pi 4 using Ubuntu server and the NextCloud Snap. And of course, it's not fully functional being ARM. And I'm liking it a lot. Definitely going to set up an x86 system for my wife for us to store photos, documents, etc. Here are a couple of my questions. I'm new to NextCloud and honestly servers with the exception of the Synology NAS. One. Could I expect to set up NextCloud server and use it reliably in a commercial environment for video editing and graphic design sharing folders out via SMB or NFS? Number two, hardware. Is it, is it hard to find a reasonable price solution? Because we're still a young company. I was looking at a used Dell rack mount system that seemed great around the $500 to $600 range on eBay. Would this be a bad route to go? I bought most of my laptops on eBay, but servers, especially like this, is something else entirely. What would you recommend for a system 
under $2,000 with drives, at least 16 to 20 terabytes after RAID. Could I use my Synology hardware? I feel like it'd be underpowered. What provider should I go uh, to for DNS so that I can access outside the office? Thanks so much for what you're doing. Keep up the great work on the show. So, Steve, what are your thoughts uh, for Mecca? There's a lot to unpack there here. There is. Um, so, uh, I know businesses that are using NextCloud. It is absolutely something you can do. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, for 4K video, it, it depends on how much you're pushing around. You would have to end up tuning this, right? So, uh, I have heard from other people who are using it to push large files of, around that um, in the past it has encountered some issues let's say i I, to my knowledge a lot of those uh, have been addressed especially when the next cloud organization got their deal with cern and cern pushes a lot of data around which tells me it should be capable of doing so it's just a matter of tuning it now whether you have the tolerance to um, fight through any kind of little hiccups or not that's a different story Um, in terms of hardware i have a relatively um interesting approach let's say maybe it may not be the mainstream approach i would have two different servers i would have a storage server that is literally just loaded down with disks that you export to the next cloud server um, i would i would do so for a few reasons i think that i like to i personally think it is best practice and and most enterprises follow this pattern the storage is not a part of the server itself 100 percent like enterprise pattern right um for a number of reasons like if you have your next cloud server go down you don't want the storage to go down with well, it even if everything works right if you don't have if you've not mod if you're not separating out and and being compartmentalized you limit yourself in the in the way of scalability right if you separate your disks from all of the things that are happening now when your storage array needs to grow that's that's a manageable problem as opposed to oh man this thing is full and all of our stuff is on it yeah, absolutely. So I would I would separate this out in terms of um, what kind of hardware you need for the front end. So the part that's actually running Nextcloud, you didn't give us a ton of data in terms of who is, how many people are are using it, how often is it being beat on? Like, are you using this for file sync of like your scratch files, or is it only picking up stuff as a finished product? Like, there's a bunch of information that's missing here that would lend itself to how much power do you need in the front end versus the storage. This, the storage doesn't need a ton of compute power, generally speaking. You're, you're talking more about um, EC, like good ECC RAM and something like ZFS. Um, you could try something like TrueNAS, for example, um, if you're looking to, for a low barrier of entry. Um, the people at 45 Drives would love to help you out, but I'm not sure that they're in the budget range from what you're talking about here. But uh, yeah, the storage, the storage compute stuff. Well, I'll let you know. I run one, two, three, four, four-ish clusters of OpenShift, like enterprise Kubernetes stuff, off of one TrueNAS server that has it. It is on 10 gig NIC, but I loaded it down with SSD drives, and it it doesn't even skip a beat. Right, so like, and it's old. It's like a Gen 8 HP server that has mm-hmm. a decent amount of. Um, a decent amount of RAM, but really it's all the, it's the storage and the, the network card that really make a difference there. Um, what do you think, Noah? 
So I, I would start by telling people, you know, a lot of times when clients ask, they'll say, hey, we want a new server. We want and certainly we've worked with um, video production companies. And a lot of times the conversation will go something like this. Hey, we, we think we want to buy a file server. What would you recommend? Here's a storage things we're looking at. And we throw them a price and then they look back and they go, wow, that's a lot more expensive than we thought. And the, the, the next thing that we follow up with is. Do you think that you need to have a new server or would you consider something used? And the question they'll ask often is, well, what's the difference? And what I try to tell them is a lot of times the biggest difference between a new server and a, a gently used server is power efficiency. It's not so much that the new server can do loads and loads more stuff than than an old server can do. It's not that we have infinite. I mean, certainly newer servers are capable of having more memory, are capable of larger storage, black planes, those sorts of things. But at the same time, especially when you're looking at under 100 terabytes, you can effectively get that in in a lot of server platforms to include something like the Dell R720, R740, somewhere in that range. Um, so I, I wouldn't hesitate at all to purchase a server off of eBay. Now, personally, if I woke up in your shoes, I would purchase a Dell R720, 730, something like that, and I would flash the RAID card into IT mode. And then what I would do is I would set all of the drives up in ZFS, and I would either use Ubuntu as the base operating system, or I would use something like TrueNAS, and that will get you a ZFS array, and then you would put some sort of a caching drive in there so that you can get your video files that you can edit straight off of the NAS, and then I would do a 10 gig link from the storage server over to your video editing workstation. And I would spend my money doing those kinds of things as opposed to buying some super nice server, because at the end of the day, really what you want, like Steve was saying, you essentially want a gigantic pit to be able to dump data into. And, and then when, if you're going to edit 4k video off of it, you want that pit to be able to render files up and have them accessible quickly so that you can read and write to disk. Hence the SSD caching drive. Um, if you got that far, I think then what I would do is I would have a second machine or if you went the Ubuntu on the base route, then you could have Ubuntu as a base. You could have ZFS storage and then you could install Libvirt and run VMs all on top of one box. But if it's in any way affordable in your budget, I might get two boxes. I would use one as storage and I would use the other as your vhost. Then, as Steve suggested, tie the storage pool, export it to send NFS, iSCSI, however you want to attach the two. And then run Nextcloud. Now, I will tell you, when I tr I tried using Nextcloud specifically for video editing, and what I found was when I tried to sync large, large files, it broke catastrophically for me. The syncing feature did because it just the PHP part wasn't designed to handle that, and I've since switched to C file. That said, that was probably six, seven years ago. It was before it was Nextcloud. It was back when it was own cloud. So they very well could have fixed that, and I, I just wouldn't know. But as far as using Nextcloud in commercial business, plenty of places are doing that all over the place. Absolutely they are. How about oh actually, how about DNS? What do you think what do you think for DNS? So access outside of the office, I think if I were him, unless there's a reason to do otherwise, I think I would just set up something like OpenVPN and get into the network rather than try to expose that stuff over the open internet. Your thoughts? I would think if this was a business, I actually like the, so they're not a sponsor of ours, even though they sponsor lots of other places. I think Tailscale would probably be the better fit for this sort of thing. Okay. Uh, as opposed to OpenVPN. So I, I like OpenVPN. I run it here. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes a little more complicated to deal with um if okay so i use certificates as part of the open vpn because mm -hmm. i think that's the best practice well it's um, and it's, they deprecated um 
they deprecated using uh, using uh, pre-shared keys now. They they want you to use certs. And so the cert management can be a little bit cumbersome in a business. I would say um, I like the I've been using Tailscale myself for getting in for some stuff, and I like I like the simplicity of it. Like it's it gives a good user management from an administrative perspective, but from my wife's perspective, uh, it's just like, hey, the little four dots is on or it's not on. And if she wants to be in home, she just clicks on the four, like, because their their symbol on iOS is four dots. Mm -hmm. Click on the four dots and she's connected, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that, it's quick, it's simple. It's, it, it, as far as I have found, I haven't found any networks where it can't connect, Mm -hmm. where I have absolutely found places that are looking for open vpn so how do they tell though i mean you can put open vpn over any port you can but but unless you're actually doing that the default is i believe 1143 or something like 1198 that. So, yeah 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 okay well um so th- there's a couple of options for you micah and so hopefully that helps you out if it doesn't i'd be in- well, actually rather it does or it doesn't we'd love to hear back from you live at asknoahshow.com uh, write write us back let, let us know how it goes or call in because this would be a good one to just have a chat about. Oh my gosh, yes. That would be fantastic. And we can have a, a, a little bit of back and forth. But we'd love to help you out, Micah. And I think you're on the right track. I love that you're doing all of this, particularly with your video editing business, all on Linux open source. It just makes me thrilled inside to see that. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of January 29th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source headlines. The Wine team has released version 8.0, which represents a year of development and over 8,600 individual updates. The Gnome team has released the first alpha build of Gnome 44. The beta release is planned for mid-February, with a release candidate in early March. The stable release is still planned for March 22, 2023. Plasma Mobile 23.1 is out. And in distribution news, the Asculus Linux developers have released version 8 of their distribution in celebration of 25 years of promoting free and open source software in educational environments. The 64-bit edition is based on the upcoming Bode Linux 7.0 distribution, while the 32-bit edition is based on Bode Linux 6.0. FreeSpire 9.0 has been released and comes with the latest XFCE desktop. FreeSpire is the free-as-in-beer version of Linspire and does not ship with any closed-source software or proprietary codecs. However, if they are needed, they are available in the Ubuntu repositories. A new gaming-focused Linux distribution named Pika OS has been released. Pika is based on Ubuntu and comes with gaming and streaming apps pre-installed. Another gaming-focused distribution named Nobara, which is built on Fedora, has had an update to be based on Fedora 37. BlendOS is a new Linux distro from the maintainer of Ubuntu Unity and the Unity desktop environment. It aims to be the last distribution you'll ever use by offering a blending of Arch, Ubuntu, and Fedora. BlendOS accomplishes this by allowing users to use the respective native package managers, which are included as containers using DistroBox. The Tails project has released version 5.9, which addresses a lot of the issues the community was having with the 5.8 release. And lastly, Ubuntu Pro, Canonical's comprehensive subscription for secure and open-source compliance, is now generally available. Ubuntu Pro was released as beta in October of last year and helps teams get timely CVE patches, harden their systems at scale, and remain compliant with FedRAMP, HIPAA, and PCI DSS. The subscription expands Canonical's 10-year security coverage and optional technical support to an additional 23,000 packages beyond the main operating system. It is ideal for organizations looking to improve their security posture, not just for the main repository of Ubuntu, but also for thousands of open source packages and tool chains. 
If you're looking to have entertainment on the command line, you might check out Pi Radio. It's a command line internet radio player for Linux, Windows, and Mac OS, and has been updated to version 0.90 stable just a couple of days ago, receiving new features such as support for radio browser, search, list, and play. You can learn more at radio-browser.info. You can do things like remote control a server and more. The command line internet radio player features include things like an internet radio station editor, a VI-like keys in addition to arrows and special keys, multiple playlist support, search theming support, optional mouse support, and more. For playback, it's simply it's using MPV, a VLC, or mPlayer without a GUI. And so if you're a person that lives on the command line, this is absolutely for you. Uh, or maybe you're kind of the kind of person that you live in a graphical environment, but you from time to time do server maintenance. And so you don't always have access to a GUI and you can still rock out to your tunes. Or maybe you're like me and you hate bouncing between different windows. And so if I'm doing a lot of dedicated, focused work, I just I just want to stay inside of the window that I'm in. And so if that's Tmux or BYOBU or whatever, I'll just log in, I'll stay there, and then I can tab over where I can have all of my applications running. Now, one of them can be an internet radio player. You can find all of the available shortcuts by using the help button or, or pressing the question mark key. And you may want to read the Pi Radio offline HTML help in the web browser by pressing slash plus H with Pi Radio terminal, uh, with the t- Pi Window terminal in focus. Again, you want to learn more, head over to radio-browser.info. And of course, we'll have the appropriate links for you available at podcast.asknoahshow.com in the show notes. Should the police be able to identify everyone who was in a busy metropolitan area just because a crime occurred in the area? In two amiscus briefs filed by the EFF, they're arguing, no, it's an unconstitutional search. Quote, the two cases, People versus Mesa in the California's Court of Appeal and the United States versus Chattery in the Federal Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, in each case, the defendant is challenging the police use of a surveillance tool that the EFF has written about called geofence warrants. In both cases, the lower court disputed the motion to suppress. In Chattery, however, the district court issued a lengthy opinion holding that the geofence warrant was unconstitutional before ruling that police relied on the warrant in good faith and therefore the evidence from their search was admissible. So if you've not if you're not familiar with this, the way that this typically works is the following. You suspect somebody of a crime and you're a police officer. And so. You go looking through your list of suspects and eventually you land on somebody that you think, ah, that guy or that woman. Pretty sure they had something to do with this. And so you go to a court and you say, I want to know where this particular individual was on this particular day because we have reason to suspect that they were involved in this particular crime at this particular address or this particular location. Judge looks at the evidence, says, yep, I agree or no, I don't agree and issues a warrant And then you go arrest that person or conduct a search warrant or whatever it is we do. What they are changing and they are doing this rapidly. So instead of starting from the premise of this is who we think is involved with this crime, what they're doing instead is saying, here's where a crime committed. Tell us whose phone was in this area. And Google comes back and says, well, 
this Android phone was here and that Android phone was there and this Android phone was there and that Android phone was over there and this Android phone. So in your six hour window that you're asking about in this particular geofenced area, here's all the phones that we were aware of. Then they can go back and start looking through those individual suspects. The problem here is unlike traditional warrants for electronic records, a geofence warrant doesn't start with a particular suspect in mind. It doesn't, it doesn't even start with a particular device or account in mind. Instead, the police are relying on data from every device inside of a geographic area during a designated time period, regardless of whether the device owner has any connection whatsoever to the crime. Now, Google has said on each warrant that it will search its entire database of users, location, history, information, data on hundreds of millions of users. And so the data that Google provides to police in response to a geofence warrant has the potential to be very precise and much more precise than cell site location triangulation in by which they look and say, what three towers was this pinging off of? And then we can triangulate a position. It allows Google to determine where a user was at a given date and time, sometimes within 20 meters or less. Oftentimes, Google can even determine a user's elevation, establishing what floor of a building that the user may have been on at the time. And as a lower court noted in the chat read last summer, Google's database, up, quote, appears to be the most sweeping, granular and comprehensive tool to significant degree when it comes to collecting and storing location data. Let me read that again for those of you in the back. Google's database appears to be the most sweeping, granular and comprehensive tool to significant degree when it comes to collecting and storing locations data. Translation, they got it all. And at the same time, however, Google doesn't guarantee accuracy because that, that was never the purpose of these tools. These tools were designed for things like navigation in mind. It just so happens it's remarkably helpful when you're trying to track down who is at a particular area. And so this obviously it creates the possibility of both false positives and false negatives. Because you could have people that were implicated. And we absolutely talked about this on Ask Noah a few weeks ago. There was a poor little old woman sitting inside of her house, retired little old woman sitting inside of her house in Colorado, minding her own business, enjoying her soft, peaceful day, when a bunch of tactical people filed out of a van and destroyed this poor woman's house and her garage in search of a perpetrator who wasn't even there and had never been there, but the location data was wrong or the police had a shoddy investigation. Either of those two things are possible. But this creates the possibility of both false and uh, false positives and false negatives. And so you could have somebody implicated for a crime that they were nowhere near the scene or the actual perpetrator not might be included in the data. And so it's a problem in both directions. And I would tell you that this is a perfect example of just because we can doesn't mean we should. And the time to get in front of this problem is right now, baby, right now, because the further this gets down the road and the more that this gets enshrined into the court systems, the more difficult it's going to be to peel back. I have a real, real problem with technology being used against its own against its own owner, in part because of ignorance, but also in part because the technology is moving faster than the general population's understanding of the technology and the laws that govern the technology. Both of those things lag behind the innovation. And if you think this technology is rapidly approaching the point 
where we can keep track of everything that everyone does and where when police go asking questions, it has the answer. You think that's bad today? You just wait until AI becomes even more prevalent than it already is. And pretty soon, it's not going to be a function of a human going through all of this stuff. Pretty soon, the police are going to ask a computer a question and the computer is going to spit back the answer. So the time to have a technological discussion of where human rights begin and end and where technological advances begin and end is right now. From the article, the warrants in both cases, the Mesa and Chatry cases, have encompassed large geographic areas and time periods. In the Mesa, the police asked for all devices in six discrete, heavily populated areas of Los Angeles during the time period where people were likely to be in sensitive places like their homes, church, medical center, or driving along one of the many busy streets included in the geofenced area. In total, police requested data for a geographic area equivalent to about 24 football fields or five to six city blocks during five hour morning commute. Similarly, in the Chattery, the geographic area was about 17.5 acres, three and a half times the footprint of New York's city block. It included a church, a chain restaurant, a hotel, several apartments, residence, a senior living facility, and self-storage business, and two busy streets. Well, why not, right? Why not? If you're the police officer and you're, you're the detective, investigator, whatever it is, and you're sitting down there and you're trying to figure out who on God's green earth is responsible for this particular crime or this particular problem, why wouldn't you go asking, particularly when the technical companies want to respond? Now, 2-Bit in the chat room at GeekLab.Ninja has this to say. Another problem is that the police are only looking for the people who had phones in that area. <clears throat> a smart criminal won't have a phone on them. So and, here's, so, and here's the issue with that, right? Today, that's true. Today, they're largely going after these phones. But give it 10 years. Give it 10 years when cars all have GSM's chips in them and report back to whatever smart thing that they report back to. Just give it a little bit and eventually the technology will catch up to where you won't be able to move a muscle without something being logged somewhere and somebody being able to go through it. And I think that's that that is I would stop short of telling you that it's fundamentally wrong because I think that's at this point an open discussion and I'd be interested in your thoughts either at 855-450-NOAA. It's 855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. I would stop short of telling you this is this is for sure the wrong way to go. I think there's room for discussion there, but I would tell you 100% it's way past time to start having this discussion. It's way past time to start going into courts and start pushing back on some of these warrants before this problem gets any worse. And thank God for the people at the EFF. Thank God for the people that understand the technical ramifications and technical implications of what's happening here and file these amiscus briefs so that everybody else that's sitting inside of a court of law understands what's being talked about here. Because this is hugely problematic, or at least has a potential to be hugely problematic. Quote, in our briefs, we argue that the warrants are unconstitutional. They are general warrants because they don't require the police to show probable cause to believe that any one device was somehow linked to a crime under investigation. Instead, they target everybody in the area and then provide the police with an unlimited discretion to determine who to investigate further. In Mesa, we also argue that the practice violates the Cal ECPA or California's landmark electronic communication privacy law. 
Chatry and Mesa are the first cases challenging geofence warrants to make it to the appellate level. However, they appear to be just the tip of the iceberg. The number of police requests for geofence warrants has increased dramatically since they first required use in 2016. According to Google, geofence requests now constitute more than a quarter of the total number of all warrants it receives, and 20% came just from law enforcement agencies in California. The Chatry and Mesa cases are likely to be argued sometime later this year, but the majority of courts to address geofence warrant in publicly available opinions have raised constitutional concerns. Refusing to issue a warrant or suppressing the evidence, we hope these two appellate courts will do the same. Me too. Because I think this is potentially hugely problematic. And it would be good. You know, the, the funny thing is, I, I, I legitimately believe if a court goes to evaluate this and they ask themselves the question, does this fall under the traditional form of a search warrant, the way that we go about investigating people's for crimes? I think they're going to fairly quickly arrive at absolutely no, it does not. Because if you look at the history of time, like no, we, you could have a crime that was committed in a neighborhood, right? And there would have been nothing physically stopping you from saying, hey, since we know the perpetrator is in this neighborhood, just happened a couple minutes ago, there's no cars, whatever. We could just block off the whole city block and just go to door to door and start searching people's houses. But they can't do that. They would require a warrant to go through there unless they suspect, unless they see somebody go into a house, something like that, right? So when it comes to people's privacy inside of their home, inside of their garage, inside of the vehicle, these kinds of things people wrap their head around fairly quickly. And they arrive at those conclusions rather rapidly to say, no, that's a violation of my rights. I wouldn't allow you to do that. And if you have any question about what somebody considers to be more private, their home or their, or their electronic device, the next time you're at a friend's house, Ask them if you can go walk around their house or if they'll unlock their phone and hand it to you. Chances are they're more likely to let you walk around their house than they are to unlock their, their, their smart device and hand it to you. Because in 2023, our lives exist on these devices. We'll have all of the links for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can read the entire story there. I encourage you to do so. Pika OS is the next generation Linux distribution that aims to make gaming on Linux easier. It has a Fedora-based system and offers a welcome app that makes it easy to install the necessary tools for gaming. The app provides quick access to update the system, install codecs and libraries, install proprietary NVIDIA drivers, and install apps from the software manager. The recommended additions tab also allows users to install popular gaming utilities such as Steam and Wine, as well as other software like Blender and LibreOffice, the look and feel tab allows users to customize the appearance of the GNOME desktop to look like a traditional desktop, Mac OS, Windows 10, or Ubuntu Unity Linux desktop. The pre-installed software on Pika OS is minimal, but users can install new apps via the software manager. When users install Pika OS game utilities, they get Steam installed, making it easy to play an array of games on the Linux desktop. The terminal window opens when the installation process starts, and it takes some time to complete. Once the installation is done, users can log into their Steam account and start playing games. So I think stuff like this is incredibly cool, in part because I'm one of those people that is way too lazy to set up purpose-built boxes for stuff like gaming. If it's available to me and I can just walk in and sit down and play it, I've learned much somewhat to my own surprise that I like gaming. I like hanging out. Mostly I like the social interaction of other people and, you know, bonding over that. But I like the idea if I can just walk in and do it. 
if it's, and this has typically been my experience, well, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to install this thing, I install that, I'm going to install all these libraries, I'm going to try this, and then I've got to install Glorious Egg Roll, and then I've got to tie this particular version of Glorious Egg Roll to this particular thing and see if, no, I don't have time for it. I, and I just don't care that much. And so I bail on that stuff fairly quickly. Having a dedicated operating system that handles and walks your hand and handles a lot of this for you, I think is absolutely incredible. My The only question I have is I question how relevant some of these things are going to be in the long term, right? Because Valve is very much approaching the space and very much working towards some of these same goals. And they're doing it rather well, I might add. I was I was really kind of surprised that I had a machine, desktop machine, had Steam installed, had Proton installed, had the compatibility set for a number of different games, and there were quite a few of them that I couldn't launch on top of Linux. Picked up a Steam Deck. Same games. Out of the box. Pulled the Steam Deck out of the box. Clicked on the games. They installed. Clicked on them. They ran. Didn't touch a darn thing. Today that works on a Steam Deck. What's going to happen when Valve gets their head wrapped around doing that on other devices as well? And SteamOS starts to take off and eventually get to a point where if you just install their operating system, they have all the bugs worked out and it just flies on Linux. I think it's going to be very difficult to compete with some of that. And the the, the downside to that model, right, when you have a company, we all were really happy when Valve took the time to invest in SteamOS and base their operating system on Linux, in part because a lot of us wanted games on Linux. And I think they've been an excellent community member. I think they've done a really good job. But we shouldn't separate ourselves from the very truth that Steam has a financial interest in Valve games, in Steam games, and being able to sell those to people. And so there isn't probably a lot of motivation in their part to make a bunch of other games work. And what I like about Pika OS, and there are other distros that specialize in, in, uh, in ease of game use and those sorts of things. Pika OS isn't specific to Steam or Steam games. Pika OS will work with a number of different games and, in fact, will let you install them via their software manager. And so you, it opens you up the opportunity to play things like MindTest. Now, it's not that you can't install something like MindTest on a Steam deck. You absolutely can. I absolutely have. It works great. But it's not what the thing is designed to do. And so it isn't a major focus for them. Whereas with Pika OS, Whatever the open source game community wants, that's what they're likely to work on. Plasma Mobile has a a new release. As announced in the last blog post, we decided to migrate the release of Plasma Mobile applications to KDE Gear, starting with Gear 2304 in April. Because of all this, we'll now decouple the blog path the blog post format from any sort of software release schedule and try to get out at least a bi-monthly basis. The blog post you're currently reading will still coincide with the release of Plasma Mobile Gear 2301 and the last mobile gear release. The KDE project releases Plasma Mobile 2301 as the latest stable version of their Plasma desktop environment for mobile devices, bringing new features, updated components, and bug fixes. Plasma Mobile 2301 is here to improve gesture, navigation, and when using the landscape mode on phones and tablets, improve the lock 
uh, screen to prevent a crash and correctly display the wallpaper as well as to improve shell rotation. Various Plasma mobile apps have been updated as well, including Clock, which now has a tab bar based sidebar to save a lot of horizontal space and a working add minute button for the timer as well as the plasma tube youtube client which got improved video playback seeking support as well as a new design that you can watch videos while navigating other pages also updated in plasma mobile 2301 is the alligator rss client which is revamped the ui works much better on widescreens the qml council terminal emulator which has received support for command line arguments as well as launching the app and the coco image viewer which now has a setting competent uh, component with a new confirmation dialogue when discarding image edits. So I've been on the fence for a good long time when it comes to things, uh, Linux on mobile in part because the experience hasn't always been stellar and it always just kind of feels like we're a few steps behind the curve, but I think we're starting to reach a pinnacle point. And what I mean by that is Linux and open source oftentimes acts as a force multiplier. You develop something one time, and then all of those little modules are available for every other project to build on top of. And so I would take you back to OBS. When it first came out, one of the earliest versions, it worked. It was built on, you know, FFmpeg and all of the cool things that power open source under the hood, but there wasn't even keyboard shortcuts to change scenes. So you had to click on the scene that you wanted with the mouse. So it was usable, but it wasn't ideal. A few months later... They got all that worked out. Now is probably one of the most popular open source streaming softwares out there. And so I think what you're seeing is you're hitting that precipice point with not just Plasma Mobile, but Posh and all of the others too, uh, UbiPorts. All of these places are finally getting to the point where they're taking advantage of that force multiplier that is open source and things are getting rapidly better. Very, very polished, very, very quickly. Music in our ears means we're out of time. I appreciate you joining us. You can join the show live every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. We'll see you next Tuesday.